0: Welcome to the MindBeat Podcast by Effective School Solutions. I'm your host, Duncan Young, CEO of Effective School Solutions. And
1: I'm your co-host, Lane Whitaker, Senior Director, Professional Learning at Effective School Solutions.
0: The MindBeat podcast is the definitive source for all topics related to school-based mental health. From sharing best practices to highlighting innovative school districts to keeping track of legislation, MindBeat is the go-to source for educators and administrators looking to implement a mental health care continuum. Together, we can make a difference in school-based mental health care and in the lives of students, families, and educators. Let's get started. Welcome to another episode of the Mind Beat Podcast. I'm Duncan Young, CEO of Effective School Solutions.
1: And I'm Lane Whitaker, Senior Director, of Professional Learning at Effective School Solutions.
0: We are incredibly excited to have you here today. We have a very special set of guests. We have a, mm-hmm. uh, a school administrator roundtable. Uh, we have three of our uh, school administrators that we work with in our various districts, Dr. Jim Tui. Uh, Ed Moran and Anna Polito, who are going to be joining us shortly. And they're really going to be talking about kind of the state of school-based mental health right now, what they're seeing kind of with students, what they're seeing in terms of how schools are responding. And they've got incredible perspectives, each and every one of them. And we're really excited to to hear from them. How are you doing, Lane?
1: I'm really well. Actually, I'm, I'm curious. I'd like to ask you about something. I saw that you were at the, is it a, I'm going to, I don't know the name, but it was like a governor's roundtable for mental health. Is that right? You were, I was,
0: yeah, yeah. Can so, you tell me about that? Uh, I sure. saw the
1: pictures; it looked really interesting. Yeah,
0: no, it was it was really interesting. So, um, so governor, so there's the National Governors Association. Mm-hmm. Uh, governor Phil Murphy from uh, New Jersey is the chair of the NGA this year, and every time there's a chair, they get to pick a chairperson's initiative, which is kind of an annual theme. For that individual's tenure as NGA chairperson, and this year, mm-hmm. uh, he chose youth mental health, and so we, we've had an opportunity to be involved uh, in a number of these convenings that they've had over the course of the year. So there's been, I think, four of them. One was on, you know, access to care. One was on, you know, financial sustainability. One was on stigma mm-hmm. and destigmatization. And uh, on this latest one, uh, I had a chance to be part of a, a panel. Uh, to talk about some of the trends going on with school-based mental health and some of the policy recommendations that we can make. And this one, this, this, uh, uh, this particular topic would be very close to your heart. It mm-hmm. was about caring for the caregiver okay. and about kind of educator support. So mm-hmm. I was able to kind of share some perspectives on that, uh, but also share I think some broader perspectives around you know just kind of uh, policy that can kind of help uh, inform and enhance access to care and address sustainability and and things like that. So it was uh, yeah. it was it was great. I, I think uh, you know one of the one of the highlights there was uh, one of the governors I won't name which kind of asking me to. Uh, asking me and other panelists to give him some recommendations on how they should spend 500 million dollars that they have in this particular state's budget around school-based mental health so not that every every day you get a chance to yeah. to share an opinion on that so that was pretty cool That's and uh, a yeah, good good experience to be a part of
1: yeah, it looked like a really cool um, experience that you had so I was I've been, been waiting to ask you about that yeah yeah, yeah
0: no no it was de- definitely a, a very interesting thanks for uh, for asking about it uh, why don't we jump into our top three list for today um, what do you what do you got for our top three
1: So today is our top three challenges that teachers will face in the 22 20 excuse me the 23 24 school year that's that's going into next year. So the top three that I have is, number one is burnout, teacher burnout, um, and teacher shortages as a result. So number one, you've got, you know, according to the Wall Street Journal, at least 300,000 public school teachers left the field between February 2020 and May of 2022. So having had those many people leave the field and they're not being replaced at high levels. So then there creates a teacher shortage. So now going into the next school year, there's going to have to be how do we fill in those gaps? How are we doing block scheduling? What are we doing to make up for the lack of personnel? So that's a real challenge, which will create more burnout. Um, Number two, I I think safety concerns are on the minds of a, lot of, um, of a lot of school staff, not just teachers. You know, School shootings have increased. Uh, there's a lot of um, just kids with emotional disturbances that results in aggressive behavior. Uh, I think a lot of you know, staff don't feel as supported by their administration when it comes into like inconsistent discipline or like arbitrary decisions on discipline. So I think safety concerns will continue to be an issue going into next year. And then the the number three is uh, just politics and education in general, whichever side you fall on it. I, I think that that's just a challenge for teachers to navigate with, um, you know, with a lot of the politics and education now having to do with SEL and whether it be, you know, the school shootings and, and all of these things. I think uh, curriculum is just a lot for teachers to navigate. So uh, those are my my top three teacher challenges going into next year.
0: Yeah, thanks, Lee so, for for in the news, the article that I wanted to highlight uh, today was um, an article from USA Today. We actually had a chance to be interviewed for this, and and uh, you know have have some some quotations in here, but this is uh, entitled, students are increasingly refusing to go to school. It's becoming a mental health crisis. Um, And I have not seen an article on school avoidance and school refusal that's as robust as this one. Mm. Um, So really, really, uh, you know, great, great article by uh, Adriana Rodriguez at uh, USA Today. Great job, uh, Adriana. Uh, we'll again post the link to this. I'd encourage everyone to take a look at this. One of the individuals uh, interviewed in here, we actually know it's a woman who is based in uh, actually lives in Mawa, New Jersey, uh, which is one of the districts that we we work in. And her name is Jane Dembski, and uh, Jane uh, has founded an organization called the School Avoidance Alliance. Uh, her uh, child uh, had some challenges with school avoidance some years ago and and, and this article kind of tells, her story and the School Avoidance Alliance is kind of a parent support and advocacy group that really mm-hmm. uh, focuses on this, uh, uh, this this important issue. And one of the things the article talks about is how school avoidance has really kind of uh, uh, you know uh, increased in in frequency coming out of the pandemic and about the fact that like the mental health infrastructure in schools largely was never really designed for this area of. Mm. Uh, of, of need. Um, talks about how school avoidant behaviors most often occur in the transition between elementary, middle, and high school, and really talks about some of the trends uh, that are taking place with the differences in drivers of school avoidance between, uh, you know, young students and and older students. So school avoidance is something, obviously, at ESS that we deal with uh, a lot, that, yeah. you know, addressing school avoidance and school refusal is, is part of our uh, clinical programming, in particular, our tier three clinical programming. So really excited to see kind of uh, this article shine such a bright light uh, on this. Likewise, that's really good information. All right, well, Lane, uh, why don't we go and get started with our roundtable for today? We have uh, three incredible guests with us today. Uh, These are three administrators from various districts across the country that we've worked with before. I'll introduce each of them, and then we'll we'll jump into our our dialogue and conversation for today. Uh, uh, First is the the distinguished uh, Ed Moran from uh, Ligonier Valley, uh, Pennsylvania, out in Westmoreland County just uh, just east of Pittsburgh. Uh, Ed is an accomplished educator with 32 years of experience, brings a wealth of knowledge to his current role, and he has held leadership positions in various school districts, including Ferndale uh, area, Richland, and uh, Ligoner Valley, where he currently serves as the Director of Education. Uh, Dr. James Toey is currently the Assistant Superintendent of Educational Programs at Old Bridge Township, public schools here in New Jersey. He's been in that position since October, 2020. He's been in the district since 2012, where he started as the uh, director of special services. And, uh, you know, we've worked with Jim for a long time and he has always focused on consistently improving the academic and social environment for all students, parents, and teachers. And then last but certainly not least, we have Anna Polito. Uh, Anna is the director of student services programs at Gilroy unified uh, school district in California. She's been in that position since uh, 2017 began her career in 1996 as a special education teacher and was previously the assistant director of special education programs at the Santa Clara County Office of Education. Uh, She has also taught graduate-level classes in the areas of teacher preparation and inclusion uh, and was recently awarded the honor of Administrator of the Year in 2021 by the Association of California School Administrators. So, uh, Ed. Some impressive
1: people today. Impressive people. Yeah. So, uh, yeah,
0: what are they doing talking to us today, right? <laughs> so, uh, uh, Ed, Jim, and Anna, are really honored and grateful that the three of you could take the time to spend with us today. Uh, thanks so much.
1: Yes, thank you for being here.
0: Our pleasure. Thank you. Well, why don't we jump right into it? Jim, I'll, I'll, I'll start off with you for uh, uh, you know, our, our first question. I mean, how have you seen the mental health of students change over the last 10 years? I think we're hearing a lot more about mental health now? What are you actually seeing as some of the key themes around that transition over the last decade or so?
2: Yeah, um, well, first, uh, let me thank both of you for for having us today. Uh, these are really important conversations. Um, and uh, just reviewing some of the podcasts from uh, the previous uh, weeks, um, it's really truly informative and helpful to have people having this conversation regularly, especially when we are facing such an issue in our schools. Um, so over the past 10 years, um, you know, schools are really seeing an evolution of the mental health for students. Um, first, the mental health needs are really more prominent, widespread and really more severe than we have seen 10 years ago. Uh, there are probably numerous reasons to that, you know, whether it's for the rise of social media, the, the impact of the pandemic or just, you know, the, the pressures that our students are seeing on a day to day basis. But um, to have these conversations is really important, but it is much more prominent and widespread than, than ever before. Uh, one of the things that I, I personally think that's occurred is that students are a little bit more self-aware of what their needs are, and they can really advocate for themselves in, a, in an academic or school setting. Uh, Ten years ago, students who had might have had anxiety or school phobia might be a little reluctant to talk to staff about that, and parents might have seen a little uh, stigma going on with that, that type of concern that parents uh, and, and students might be having. But overall, I think parents and students are really self-advocating for themselves, which is really leading to a little bit of a rise the number of cases that we're seeing in, in public school settings um then, lastly you know the the big part that i think you know everyone here could probably attest to is the the impact on the school districts and the level of responsibility placed on the school districts due to an overall lack of access to mental health services um, across uh, the, the country um, and i think that's something that we're seeing here on the east coast something i'm sure that um, um our Uh, Esteemed guests can also see on on the various parts of the country that they're in, but we're really seeing that a lot, that the the access to services is a little limited, and therefore the responsibility and the ability of the school districts to ensure that the students have what they need to be successful academically is really falling on on the, the school districts as a whole.
1: Uh, well, that's a great segue into then my next question was going to be for Anna, but this is really for any of you. How have you seen the role of uh, school districts and the in the role that we play in mental health care evolve over these last couple of decades?
3: I'll, I'll go first, if no one minds. So I, I don't think school districts want to be in the mental health business if you want to know the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like. No, our mission, our lane, is to educate children, and public schools are fantastic at that. We're great at, at preparing students to move out into the real world, but out of necessity because, as, as Jim touched upon, you know, the mental health needs uh, of, the, of the child are at the point now where we can't properly educate because we have to help them navigate through their own issues of mental health, And whether those manifest as anxiety, depression, school avoidance, et cetera, um, before we can educate them, we have to have them stable and and open to that education and feeling safe and feeling secure. So school districts, just like every other issue, you know, we step in. There are our children and our job is to take care of them, to protect them, to educate them. So if they need mental health services,
0: well, then by goodness, administrators like us are going to make sure they have them. Thanks, Ed. And is that in alignment with what you're seeing in your in, in Gilroy?
4: Absolutely. I mean, I'll reiterate what both my colleagues um, stated. I think that, um, of course, that that actually I could be quoted in saying that you know we didn't really sign up and and we, mental health really wasn't my my wheelhouse. Right, I'm a special educator, but the mental health um, has come under my position, my department. And one thing that I want to add, I think um, the severity of the needs of our student and the younger. I mean, we have students that are suffering in, you know, elementary, but we even have students that are um, experiencing, you know, severe need. Um, you know, even in, in preschool, you know, or kindergarten, um, severe needs. To, I mean, we've had, you know, severe crisis with really young children over the last couple of years. And I think in addition to providing the services for our students, we are really engaging with helping and supporting the parents. Right. So we've done a lot in our district to be able to bring in outside services to not only support our students within the schools to access their education, but their parents as well.
0: So it sounds like you're describing a scenario where kind of the role of districts with respect to mental health has like kind of arisen organically out of this focus on academics because the recognition is that in order to support the academics, we can't do that without supporting the the whole child Um how does that, I mean, what, what kind of transition has that been for your respective districts? Cause what you're describing is a new skill. And as with any new skill, uh, you know, it take, takes time to kind of learn that and and evolve. Like uh, Jim, what did that look like in, in Old Bridge and how have you kind of built those skills over time?
2: So so I think the the skill set is is gonna be based on the three, three groups. You have students, you have family units, um, and then you have staff. Um, and each one is really addressed separately and differently. Uh, The first thing that we acknowledged here in uh, in Old Bridge is that we had a a need for students, especially on the secondary level, who were experiencing, even pre-pandemic, high levels of anxiety um, and and school avoidance. Uh, That's when we were able to partner with ESS um, and uh, develop a, a very comprehensive, starting with initially one clinician. and growing to four at our high school. Uh, there was We worked with you um, in both tier two and tier three at the middle school level as well. Um, and building that, that capacity to address the student needs uh, was paramount. Uh, the second was trying to address the um, knowledge of the parents to give them some coping strategies to work with their students who specifically were uh, struggling with you know, not wanting to come to school or having anxiety coming to school. So uh, through our district, we have family academy nights uh, where we're providing some uh, instruction uh, for uh, parents on areas such as anxiety, uh, addressing school phobia, and then obviously, um, through ESS, the uh, the uh, parent engagement activities that are constant uh, with all the parents that occur and are in the program. Um, also, uh, we the last part is capacity with our staff. Um, and next year, we're we are implementing uh, mental health coordinators in our district. They're gonna span from K through 12. There's gonna be three positions that will um, not only help to assess the needs of each building, but also provide some direct instruction to and professional development to teachers who are dealing with students who have a high level of anxiety, um, and uh, also try and provide some um, outside resources, which previously uh, weren't collated amongst our community members, uh, to provide to the parents. So there'll be one, it's a one-stop shop. If you have a concern with anxiety with your third grader or your preschooler or your eighth grader, you can go to the mental health coordinator who would be a district-level person, uh, and they can provide you with outside resources which would potentially um, address the concerns. So, um, and so we, in this case, we're able to address the, the staff, the parents, um, and the students through a multi-year step process. That's great.
1: Thanks, Jimmy. Uh, Just as as a follow up on that, as you're sort of describing the mental health continuum in your district, uh, what why have you chosen to partner with some external uh, entities like ESS and others, and versus having your own staff, you know, take care of a lot of the needs as well?
3: Oh, I would love to answer that one because Please. truthfully, our partnership with ESS is is fantastic, and for this reason. So I think Jim and Anna and I all have the ability to hire licensed clinical social workers or or therapists for our buildings. I I, I think we can all safely say that. What we can't do is supervise them and provide clinical treatment and adjust mental health plans for the children and communicate effectively with the parents about what are potential causes, what are potential solutions, what are potential additional services that need to be rendered to to meet the needs of their child. With ESS, we have that. So we have a partner now. So our school teams can help identify at-risk children, at-risk families. Um, And then ESS can bring to bear the services they need and then give us professional recommendations about what do they need. And it may be services that go beyond what a school should be providing or can provide. And, and that's what's key. You know, they can tell us that, you know, school-based isn't appropriate for this young man. We need to get him community-based services or we need to get him inpatient services. That, that's not a skill set that I possess, um, but ESS does. And that is, in, in, in and Duncan, you've heard me say it a million times, that is, in my mind, the greatest benefit uh, of our partnership. I mean, we can truly help kids in a clinical way while maintaining them within an educational environment. Right.
0: Thanks, Ed, for, and I, for sharing that. Anna, please.
4: And I can't agree more. I mean, I think our partnership with ESS has been a game changer. Um, the same thing, the expertise, and also being able to offer the continuum of options within a district program. So that was one of my, um, you know, goals here. Um, a lot of times when our students need this level of support, um, sometimes the school district has in the past has not been able or have the resources to provide this. So I think that creates problems all along, right? So this has helped the district to build the partnership with the the, the families, um, including ESS. Um, and then also being able to keep the students in their community, which is beneficial for everyone's mental health and their social. Um, social skills Um, and I think especially this year so we've been in partnership I think we're going in our fourth year with ESS and every year we've expanded so this last year which has just been a dream and the feedback from parents and from um, even our board members hearing it out in the community and our teachers and and our students are doing so well with how we've expanded so we've expanded the more self-contained services and programs but then as you as um James had mentioned our tier 2 and what is great is we have a supervisor that supports us in all the different tiers and there really is the continuum of options and the the coordination of services so I just can't I can't say enough
1: well, thank Thanks, you we, yeah we appreciate hearing about the impact that we're making your school district thank you so much
0: well i think one of the big challenges i think with all districts right now when it comes to mtss and our tiers of supports is just getting all of it to kind of you know work as a continuum and not as a series of of disconnected parts and so any anytime i think we can work with with any of your districts and and you know we're, we're never going to come in and do it alone we're always going to be collaborating with your your internal staff but as much as we can kind of make that work as a seamless whole that's that, that benefits kids at the end of the day
4: And if I can just add one more, I think one thing that's also been so helpful with ESS is they have really kind of even tailored their services to some of the unique needs of our district. Right. They really helped me to, you know, I have sometimes these ideas that I think will maybe not be able to materialize and they have really helped to support us. And I think that's been so helpful.
0: Yeah. Ed, you don't know anything about that, do you?
3: Well, I would like, I'd like to add a little bit to that, Anna. So there's actually, and and maybe you guys don't know about this. There's actually a level of 2.5 services uh, in between tier two and tier three that, that ESS, you know, partnering with us has been put in place. And these are for children who are, who require more intensive therapy than a regular tier two program can, can provide, but less than what a tier three would look like. Um, and they've been wonderful in creating those kind of, of, of programming and partnerships. And, and most importantly, they listen to the needs of our community because yes. we're on the ground. And they can adapt and they can provide those services once they have the relevant information. That's powerful stuff. That's how you create change. And that's how you help kids.
0: Ed told me before the call that he wants to create a tier two point three seven five. So that's going to be the next <laughs> okay. thing that we the next thing that we work on together. I, I so I like it. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. what
4: I'm going to call it. I think we have some very something very similar in our district, yeah. and I think I'm going to start calling it two point five. Well, and
0: I, and I think I think it's important because I mean tier it's uh, tier two and tier three. I think the labeling of MTSS is important, but you know your definition of tier three might be different than my definition of of tier three. So I think it's important okay. sometimes that we get beyond the labels and talk about like what are the symptoms students are presenting with and what is the care that they need in order to kind of address their their need and, and a lot of times that leads us down a road of customization and and i think that's good uh, i i think uh, we definitely don't want to be kind of rigid with some of these these models and a little bit of flexibility is a is a good thing um jim and anna both of you and, and we've referenced kind of out of district placements and non public school placements prior in this in this conversation i know i know both of you big themes in kind of our work with you has been helping to um, reduce the number of out of district placements and and kind of where where clinically appropriate you know help help students thrive kind of within the home district can you talk a little bit about that trade off and how maybe has you know your respective district's perceptions of out of district or non public school placements changed over over time have kind of the attitudes and beliefs about which students require an, an ODP or an MPS placement changed or adapted over over the you know past few years
2: uh so I, I could jump in there so the um uh the original onus behind the district going towards uh, ess was in fact to um, bring students back to district um in, there was a big push in the district for inclusion um to anna's point that she made earlier you know there are larger events that high school students especially want to attend they want to attend the dance they want to attend friday night football they want to attend band rotc team sports and in a lot of cases, those aren't available in ad district placements, so the, or the student has to take a bus ride and lose part of their day at the end of the day if an ad district placement doesn't offer that for the student as a whole. So um, that was our original um, uh, purpose, to bring students back from ad district placements, but also to um, ensure that they are a member of their community, because they're still going to reside and work in the community, most likely when they're 18 or 21, when they're out of programs uh, within our respective community. Um, however, what we found as a a supplementary positive to this is that it also, besides being, being able to bring students back, it also stops students from going out of districts. So right now, you know, we're very proud of our ad district numbers. We're under four percent of a total population about, you know, 1,500 students, uh, which is a nice number to have because it's a lot of um, additional resources that we can redirect to our in district programs through lack of um, the need to transport students to other schools. Um, or to um, you know pay tuition to another out of district placement. So to Anna's point, I think she hit it on the head that you know students want to come back, especially at those over uh, older levels, to ensure that they're part of the community. Um, and at the same time, it does save the district um, a lot of uh, resources uh, before um, the student does have to go to a different placement in an outside uh, school.
0: Anna, is that in line with your experience in Gilroy?
2: yes i think absolutely we were
4: able to the same thing be able to transition several students back from the non-public schools because i'm sure um both of you experienced this when we would transition students back from a non-public school when they were ready because we didn't have that level of support and it was so isolated and secluded they really had a hard time transitioning back so this gives us the ability again of course kids first, right? For them to be able to access the services beyond their their own school campuses um, and then have that transition and have that level of support in the transition. So um it's also helped us to put in resources in other places that we might have been using those resources and funds for the non non public schools. Um and we have kept several students have been able to be successful outside of a non public school, which years ago probably would have been placed in a non-public school. But because of our partnership and the resources that we now have available in the mental health um, uh, area in our districts, we've been able to service our students on um, the district with a lot of success. I mean, we've had several students graduate out of the ESS program, I mean, earn a diploma. We had one student, I mean, I almost jumped out of my chair, that at our award ceremony, who was in the ESS program, had a merit award, actually received an award for academics at the awards night. I mean, those are the you know, I mean, I get chills talking about it. So, I mean, and that is a student who, you know, um, transitioned back from residential. We transitioned into this program and they graduated with honors and an award from a, a district high school program. So. I love
1: hearing stories like that. Mm-hmm. Um, Ed, earlier you mentioned that, you know, school districts have been forced to, to provide mental health to students in order to even think about, you know, academic achievements. So. With mental health issues on the rise, what do teachers, paraprofessionals, and other staff still need to know about mental health, and what is your district doing to support that need?
3: Well, again, I'm going to reference our partnership, because a large piece of what we do is professional development for all staff. There's a component built into that each and every year. We've been with ESS two years, and I'm very, very proud of the fact that we've signed, that we'll be with ESS for at least an additional five uh, Um that's, that, that makes me feel good inside because I know my kids are going to get what they need and my, my staff is. But we provide professional development from ESS. So their professionals come in, we talk about, we do a need survey with teachers, we talk about what teachers want to know, need to know, et cetera. And then those, those professional development activities are, are designed you know, specifically to our need. Uh, we've gotten great responses from our faculty regarding that. From our Paris, and we we plan on continuing to do that, you know, throughout the length of our partnership. The other piece of that training, though, Lane, is that we also do what we call Parent University. So we're also putting topics out there regarding mental health for our community, and you know, it, it's not just the Valley community. We we do them virtually, and then we post them online. And I invite all of Westmoreland County, anyone who wants to come and learn about mental health issues and and proactive ways to improve mental health, they're invited to Ligonier Valley's podcast or, or webinars. You know, that is just a, a community service because I think educating not only our faculty, but our community is vital to, to meeting the needs of our children.
1: Uh, well, as senior director of professional learning, I couldn't agree more with the need. So we, we thank you so much. Um, I also want to just say that, you know, one of the common things that we hear from from district staff is that um, there's a lack of buy-in to some professional development um, initiatives because school districts don't commit to, you know, several years, that it takes years to change a culture in a district or to create a trauma-attuned learning community. And so I appreciate and applaud your, um, you, you know, your desire to to extend that contract so that staff knows, no, this is this is the new way. This is what's happening. This isn't a year that it's going to come and go and you don't have to really invest in it or buy into it. And I, I just think that really um, makes staff say, this isn't going anywhere. Like we should really um, get into, you know, this professional development or this new initiative that's coming our way. So I just want to applaud that effort.
3: Well, I also want to thank my superintendent of my school board, because that is, you know, there is buy-in from the very top Mm-hmm. Um, that, that this is an issue that Ligonier Valley is going to address and, and we're going to be aggressive in addressing it.
1: Also, the community partnership has been wonderful for us, too. I, I know on our end, um, we really enjoyed being part of Parent University and also applaud the efforts to really have that common language between school and the community uh, around mental health topics and, and and other things. So thank you so much.
0: Ed and Jim and Anna, one of the things that we hear uh, a lot from districts is around funding sustainability. So we as a district know that we need to support the mental health of students. Uh, you know, we we know we need to make uh, investments in in staff and in capacity in order to build those capabilities to support students. But how do we fund this stuff in a sustainable way over the long term that doesn't re- you know doesn't rely on temporary COVID relief funding or or kind of you know uh, uh, grants that might have a short shelf life? Each of you, I think, have had a, a fair degree of success in figuring out creative ways to fund your programming. Uh, uh, sustainably. Could could you maybe each just briefly talk about you know how you have approached funding sustainability and what has been kind of in the mix for you on that? Maybe, Anna, we could start with you and then move to Jim sure. and then Ed.
4: Right. So one of the things that we are, the funding sources that we use is we use our mental health funds, both federal and state um, mental health funds. So even in the past, we just didn't have the capacity and the sources when we tried to do it kind of disjointed to even utilize all that funding. So Honestly, the cost of both, we have a program at the middle school and high school, we are completely using our mental health funds to support that program. And then also what has been just amazing, um, the therapists through the ESS programs bill through our LEA um, Medi-Cal billing program, So we've been able to generate some additional funding. And then of course, um, I just also wanted to, to mention that, um, as far as the whole community buy-in, just our last board meeting, May 18th, um, ESS, um, presented with me at the board meeting and talked about all of this information and, and, you know, the successes that we've had in the professional development. Um, and so I just want to mention, mention that, that the, um, you know, just kind of the whole community, um, you know, support. I wish I could get five years. I'm going to try that. Um, But that was one thing I said, if I don't last year, there's a couple um, things I said you cannot get rid of, and ESS is one of them. Um, But our funding sources, we've been able to, and part of that presentation, about how the cost effectiveness, how the cost savings, right? So even if, you know, with you know, with inflation or however, um, as a, maybe the cost increases, the cost would increase if we weren't able to serve these students. So really just the cost savings has helped us. But, you know, primarily we fund through our use of our Medi-Cal reimbursements and through our our um, mental health state and federal funding. Thanks, Anna. Uh, Jim?
2: Uh, very similar to what Anna said, we are, we utilize our IDA funds. Um, we have semi reimbursement where available. Um, recently, it's my understanding that um, New Jersey just passed a law that students who are identif- not identified as needing special education related services could be eligible for semi for reimbursement. So we're actively pers- looking at that legislation. Hopefully that goes through uh, soon here in New Jersey. Um, and, um, most recently, uh, ESSER funds, uh, the CARES, ESSER two, ARP-ESSER were all, um, areas that we were able to expand the program. Um, but really our, our main source of funding, um, and I have to compliment again, our, our superintendent, our board of education for the dedication to the program is local funding. You know, we are, um, you know, I don't know if anyone would follow New Jersey, but there's a funding formula that has changed substantially over the course of the past couple of years in New Jersey. And Old Bridge has unfortunately lost a lot of funds. Um, however, um the um the superintendent and board of education really have continued to support programs addressing the mental health of students. Um and because of that, we're able to make sure that every year it is budgeted. Although I do want to get Ed's five year deal if there's a discount. Yeah, me um, but too. If, but if not, then uh I'll have we'll to call
0: it later, Jim. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Trade trade notes, right? So uh uh Ed and a good segue to to you. Do you want to talk about your your uh how how were you so, able to to do the the do the five years? So Pennsylvania
3: doesn't have the reimburse, reimbursables that I think California and New Jersey have. So we leveraged our ESSER funds and we were able to shift costs from the general fund using ESSER funds to kind of create a, a small savings account that, w- that we dedicated towards mental health. So that, that provided our first two years. Moving forward, we were fortunate enough to hit a grant for a large sum of money. Um, and now Pennsylvania has begun funding mental health initiatives on a competitive basis, but all of them are competitive. Uh, the majority of them, I should say, are competitive. There, There is a small pot of money allocated to mental health each year that just came out for the 22 23 school year, and it will, it's, it, May or may not be in the 23-24 budget. So using those things and leveraging the ESSER funds, we've been able to, to create a, a, a buffer so that at least the first three years of our, our five-year extension we have put aside. So moving forward, you know, it, it's our jobs as as the administrators to, you know, how are we going to maintain this? And things I have to pursue are how can I receive access funding for services provided within the schools, whether they're uh, MA eligible or not MA eligible? So those things, but we have a window of time now, which you know we, we bought ourselves time that we can really look um, and establish a sustainability plan that that, in my my hope goes far beyond five years. These are the types of services that should just be directly embedded within school districts. And I don't care what state we reside in, kids are kids are kids and they all have problems and they all need these services and school districts, you know, they need the support to provide them. And again, to reiterate what Jim said, thank you to the superintendent, and to the board of education, because they know that if we can't find a grant or we can't, they've committed, they've yeah. said this is important for our children and our community. So that's powerful stuff.
0: I agree and when you have that alignment between folks like you who are who are kind of driving the vision and then your superintendents and your boards, I think I think that's a a, a really powerful combination. Um, and Jim we're, we're watching that build just like you are. I mean my prediction would be in the next three to five years I think we're going to see every state expand kind of Medicaid reimbursement to cover all students, not just special education students. I think California's there and New Jersey hopefully that's this summer idea. and then and then hopefully Pennsylvania kind of one of the states coming next down the down the line here in the next year or two.
4: And I just have to reiterate the same thing with our superintendent, our board, um, a few years ago, right when COVID hit, um, we were, we were kind of in a bind where we had to transition students from a non-public school because they were closing their doors. So they were uh, very receptive, and they, you know, really supported in, you know, us partnering with ESS. And, I mean, we had a turnaround within a few weeks. Um, and so they were very receptive, and my superintendent, to kind of, you know, try something new. And it's been super successful, and they are very pleased with the results. And, you know, they continue to support the partnership.
1: So as we talk about funding sustainability, you know Duncan already mentioned that the three of you are all from states—Pennsylvania, New Jersey, California—that have governors that are really proactive with mental health funding. Um, do you have any messaging for federal legislators in terms of you know we know ESR funds are, are going to start drying up this year, and to, how to make mental health um, more sustainable through federal funding? Are there any messages that you have, or I
0: would say federal, or, federal or state funding, or state right? Because right. yeah. I, I think still a lot of, a lot that we can do at the state level as well.
4: Agreed. I mean, I think, I mean, we're, like you said, California, we're going to be participating in um, also, you know, we'll be participating in the capability to bill for some of our general ed students um, through the County Office of Ed. We're partnering with them to support in that area. But I think we still struggle with finding providers, right? I mean, I think it would be, you know, at one time there was like loan forgiveness for teachers. I mean, we're still struggling with finding special ed teachers, but I think incentives to help, you know, support people into going into the area of mental health, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Mm -hmm. You know, like I said, loan forgiveness or grants or things that that are are people that are interested um, and have a passion for could get that. Because we all know if you're in education, you're not going to be rich, right? You do it for your passion. And so any of these kinds of incentives, I think, would really be encouraging.
1: I love that, though, about encouraging people to go into the field. As you Mm -hmm. said, there's just a lack of access. There's not as many professionals in mental health as the need requires. I think that's a great incentive.
0: Jim, Ed, anything you'd like to add to that question?
2: Well, I I mean, I can, you know, two of the major uh, positions that really address the mental health outside of a, you know, a tier three setting are social workers and school psychologists. And both of those positions, just in New Jersey, the school psychologists, they have a double master's degree and they work a year for free. So that that concept is really, for lack of a better term, a little antiquated, where you expect a 25 or 26-year-old person to work for one full year without receiving any pay. So if there's a way to kind of truncate that process to make the certification for some of these mental health providers uh, easier, um, whether through the state or on the federal level, I think it would really benefit schools as a whole because you would have, as Anna said, more access to providers who could provide the students, and and they already have the training, they already have the schooling, they just haven't done their 8, fifteen or eighteen hundred hours of um, service to their institution, college institution, university to get the actual certification. We're allowed to, to emergency cert student uh, uh, school psychologists and social workers if that's necessary, but that should be more of the norm than it is um, the uh, exception.
3: Thanks, Jim. Ed. So. I would I would love for both state and federal legislators to look at the data, look at the data, look at how children are performing. Look at how many children have been hospitalized and then find those exemplary programs, regardless of what state they're in and say, how are you keeping those numbers down? What are you doing specifically? We can show them data. We can show them statistics that say pre, and I'll use it, ESS services, post ESS services. Mm-hmm. Just in fun fact, first year in Ligonier, typically we would hospitalize, I don't know, maybe 40 kids a year, two, two in the first year of ESS services. Think about that. So we go from 40, 45 children who are going to be receive a a, a in hospital placement for mental health issues, to two. That's data that legislators should look at and say, "My goodness, what are you doing?"
0: It's and And, I think, that's we a, this. <laughs> and I think most of our states don't have good data aggregation kind of policies on this. So I, I don't, I don't know in any of New, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, California whether or not there is good. Uh, data on hospitalizations. And a lot of times when you get this data, it's like looking backwards, like four years or something like that. So there's like a, a delay in it. So I I, I think that's a that's a great point, better policies around data collection at the state level, because we can't really drive policy, uh, you know, at the state level, unless we've got a statewide bird's eye view as to what's what's going on. All right, well, final, final question for uh, the day, and this is a, a question that we ask all of our guests. Could you maybe just talk a little bit about your personal strategies for stress relief, self-care, how you keep yourselves kind of kind of relaxed and well-regulated given the, uh, given the rigors of your respective jobs? Uh, Ed, you look like you want to jump in here, so I'm going to start with you on this one.
3: I'm, I'm going to go with two things. Exercise, move around. I, I have to be active. I have to do stuff. And I have to talk to people I love. Like when you're having a bad day, you got to talk to somebody. Yeah. And it could be my brother, it could be my girlfriend, it could be my sister, my buddy. But you got to share that because we all have support systems. We all have to realize that it's okay to utilize those support systems. So, Anna, why do we go to you next?
4: Um, I, went to, I was going to say the same thing. I was going to say my poor husband. He's my kind of my venting and um, – I'd say that I need to work on it better, I guess, balance. But I think the same thing: get grounded. Like I just think about and kind of try to like just be happy to be with my family um, and appreciate, you know, my, what I do have, my kids. But my my poor husband. I'm happy he's an engineer because I'm very emotional
2: and he's very linear. He's an engineer, so it works well.
0: There you go. Shout out to Anna. Also, good
4: good
2: stuff. So, champ. <laughs> Uh, I you know again, same thing echo, same thing when uh, Ed and, and Anna said, uh, really, just trying to stay active and spending time with friends and family. My wife's at the pillar of our house. Uh, she's wonderful shout out to Caitlin. My, spending time with my kids Ave and James, uh, which is wonderful. Um, but also uh, kind of having that that mindset that if it you know your day passes what's called the I call it the pillow test where you can rest your head down at night and say you did the best for you know the students and parents that you work for every day. I think that's where, um, at, the, at the end of the day, I feel like I did a, a decent job and uh, come uh, energized for the next day.
1: The pillow mm-hmm. test. I, I like, like it. that. I like it. Yeah. It's good, good stuff. I, like so.
2: that.
0: Tim,
2: I love
3: that. Mm-hmm. I call it the shave test. If I can look in the mirror and shave, yeah, then I feel like I've been doing a good job.
4: And I call it the sleep <laughs> at night test. So we're all on the same there page. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can sleep at night.
0: Well, Ed and Jim and Anna, thank you so much, yes. A, for, for kind of being with us today, but just B, for your your kind of commitment to student Service. mental health and for everything that you do to support your, your students. You've been kind of great great partners for us, but you're, you're uh, just all incredible for the students that you serve. So just appreciate you and appreciate your time today. Yes. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you all of so you. much. Okay.
1: You as well. Thank you so Likewise. much for being here.
0: All right, Lane. Let's uh, end up today with uh, you know what inspired us. You want to go ahead and get started? Sure.
1: So, little known fact about me: I am a science nerd. Um, I, I think if I had had a better mind for math, I'd probably work for NASA right now. Honestly, <laughs> Does that surprise you? Um, so I have, I follow um, NASA on YouTube and now SpaceX. And so it, people may or may not be familiar with the Hubble telescope. That was like our big thing um, years ago. And it took pictures that we could not even fathom of the universe um, in our galaxy. Well, then now the, the latest telescope, Hubble's still out there, but now the latest telescope is actually called the James Webb, telescope. And it is like debunking the whole Big Bang Theory, Mm. which I have to say, I never really subscribed to in the the first or (laughs) I never was really into I never really got down with the Big Bang Theory. But yeah, there's all this evidence to debunk it now. They're finding objects that are older than what we thought that the universe is or should be. So um, it is just returning these incredible pictures of things that we've never seen. There's all these new theories now about black holes. So I don't know. I was inspired by the technology, the progression just in my lifetime. I cannot believe I mean I remember talk about trauma though I remember the Challenger Exploding when I was in second grade, and now we are have rovers on Mars and we have these telescopes that are taking these incredible photographs and giving evidence. So I'm inspired by that, by the technology, and just to kind of see where it leads us.
0: Yeah, and the backstory in the web Telescope and like all, all the I heard a podcast like probably a couple of years ago when they yeah. launched it, right, about how all, all the trials and tribulations they had in getting that off the ground mm-hmm. and the way they have to deploy it when they got in space, like it went unfolded yeah. or built itself like a giant umbrella. It's a really cool, absolutely, uh, yeah. Yeah. And,
1: and even um, I started really getting into it when we had the rover land on Mars. You could see the whole landing live on NASA. You could still go back and watch it. And I was like, this is so cool. And you can keep up with it like on the daily. Like, what's what's the rover doing today? And you'll see the rover is in a mountain or it's going to do this thing. It's collecting samples. So I I, I told you I'm a science nerd. People probably wouldn't believe that. About That's really me, cool. Yeah. But I love yeah. that stuff.
0: Yeah, so what inspired me is uh, my uh, oldest daughter, who's going to college in the fall, just earned her uh, Girl Scout Gold Award. And uh, I was really excited about that. She actually created a kindness curriculum. uh, She created a
1: curriculum? Created a
0: little miniature kind of kindness curriculum. I love this. Yeah, really, really cool stuff. And so she uh, uh, was, was kind of recognized for that. They had a little ceremony for... Her and the other kind of uh, young women who received the, the gold award. So really, really cool. And just a nice kind of end of her high school career kind of a yeah. accomplishment. So shout out, Mary Grace. Want to yeah. give her like a I see how you'd be inspired
1: by in that. That's so cool. I'm inspired by that. Yeah, that so cool. stuff, by that. yeah. <laughs> I'd love to see it. <laughs> but right. that's really cool.
0: Well, good, good stuff. Lane, uh, good to see you as always. And uh, thanks mm-hmm. to everyone for joining in on another episode of the Mindbeat Podcast. And we'll talk to you next time. Take care. Bye,
2: everybody.